were discussing the middle part of the Noble Eightfold Path, namely the uh, part of virtue. And I mentioned yesterday that our emotional states have a lot to do with that. And that's why I explained equanimity. And of course, they go, that goes hand in hand with loving-kindness and compassion. Now, our purification or purity of virtue is our behavior. And that is the foundation of our spiritual practice. Our behavior in everyday life, our behavior towards others, our behavior under any circumstances. Now, the more of equanimity we have already established in ourselves, the easier it is to have purity of behavior because our behavior breaks down when we're either enormously attracted or enormously repulsed. So then behavior becomes a problem. So equanimity is a great help in that. Now our purification of all our states is a spiritual path. And the spiritual path being a path of purification means it's a path of letting go. Letting go of all those things which are disturbing and destructive in ourselves. Never justifying, just seeing, recognizing, not blaming, changing. There is nothing to justify and there's nothing to blame. Things are either pure, uh, impure, and we're either practicing or we are following our instincts. The other two parts of the Noble Eightfold Path are concerned with concentration and wisdom. And that's what concentration does for us. It purifies thought and emotion. Concentration makes it impossible to have impurity of thought or emotion as long as concentration lasts. Now I've already mentioned to you, and I'll mention it again, that we can't only rely on our meditation. We have to do all the purification aspects in everyday life. So for the thoughts, it's a four supreme efforts, and for the emotions, it's the four Brahma-viharas or for the four supreme emotions. These are guidelines for our everyday life, which carries over into meditation, and meditation carries over into everyday life. The purification is the aspect of moral conduct, virtue. And without that, we are lacking a very decisive ingredient on the spiritual path. Because if there is virtuous behavior, 
there is definitely joy with it. <coughs> if there isn't virtuous behavior, the joy disappears. It's that easy to check. If there isn't any inner joy, behavior, including thought and emotion, of course, is not pure. It immediately deteriorates inside of ourselves into all sorts of negative states. And if we allow this to continue, then we go downhill. The Buddha said, we either advance or regress. We can't stand still. Nothing in this universe stands still. Why should we? We are the microcosm of the universe. Each one of us carries within the whole thing. So it's either that we advance or we regress. No way can we keep it static. So our virtuous behavior, which means also the kind, the emotions of loving kindness, compassion, joy with others and equanimity, and the wholesome thoughts, brings a feeling of inner ease, an inner joy. It brings a feeling of fearlessness, because we are not giving any fear in our behavior to others. So as long as we are not concerned with anything that's fearful, we also don't feel fearful, which is a great advantage. in our everyday life. And we can feel it quite clearly when there is something within us which is aggressive or which is, um, could be harmful to others, that there's a feeling of uncertainty and there's a feeling of disquiet. So if we become more and more attuned to what goes on within us, we will see that all of that which is negative, which arises within us, which is not pleasant, is due to a cause. And the cause lies strictly within our mind, because our emotions, of course, also lie in our mind. Part of mind states is feeling. So if we are feeling not pleasure, but an inner sweetness, it's due to the fact that we are acting, thinking, and emoting in a purified way. If that's absent, we better check it out. Why? What's happening? Fearlessness is another aspect which arises. Non-repentance. We don't have to be um, feeling guilty about anything. There's nothing that we are feeling remorse about. We're feeling at ease with ourselves. Now, the more we practice that, the easier it becomes, of course, to see it, but also the m more we will be alert to even the slightest fault. This is part of the practice.
in the beginning we justify all of them I can't do it or I don't want to do it or nobody does it or I just don't feel like it or whatever it is or because these people are so terrible of course I have to and whatever it may be constant justification that's the beginning but if we again continue to meditate we will see that this is useless it doesn't help us at all because there's always somebody doing something else and we're always going to feel like something that we don't want to do so it doesn't really help so instead of that we will become alert to what goes on within and the more we practice that we will become more and more alert and eventually be very much aware of even a fault which in past years we would never even have considered a fault everybody's doing that it's nothing but later we think yes it is something so we become in a way we become more attuned but also far more careful with ourselves and this being careful with ourselves of course has the connotation of karma making the more careful we are with ourselves the more we will be attuned to the fact that we have a choice of what kind of karma we make if we keep our virtue um, as a purification system within there's a self-possession we feel confident we haven't done anything to harm anyone we feel self-possessed there is a feeling of ease there's a feeling of inner authority not outer authority outer authority one can get any which way with degrees and with uh, labels and all sorts of things inner authority we have authority over ourselves now that kind of inner authority gives a feeling of being at ease wherever with whomever one comes together wherever one finds oneself which all boils down to peace so this is one aspect of peacefulness virtuous behavior in the slightest and most subtle manner containing not only conduct but also thought and emotion and virtue has to be positive it can never have anything negative in it so we do have a very good guideline checking our own inner feeling the more we <coughs> think negatively or react emotionally with negative emotions the less energy there is and the less energy we have the more difficult it becomes to purify so we are always going around in a circle now the um, the peacefulness is really that what everybody is looking for inner peace we have of course our concentration to give us that but unfortunately we can't keep it going and it wouldn't even be appropriate to keep it going it wouldn't be possible to uh, meditate while driving a car in fact I would uh, uh, very strongly advise against it it's uh, not safe so and since everybody does these things like telephoning and driving cars and writing letters and going shopping 
there have to be other support systems to keep our peacefulness intact and one day of course make the peacefulness such that there's nothing that can disturb it that of course comes from inside but particularly in our daily life the support system comes from virtue from our conduct our thought and our emotions so if we keep that in mind and if we don't keep it in mind we can't practice it anyway so we might as well keep it in mind then we have a very direct guideline and a very easily understood guideline because everybody knows what it means to be virtuous nobody doesn't know the only thing that happens is that we make excuses that's all excuses on all levels i can't do it because my back hurts i can't do it i haven't got the time i don't want to do it because it's too expensive uh, any kind of excuse will do we have a whole uh, wardrobe full of excuses and we use them at all appropriate or inappropriate moments but everybody knows what virtue is nobody has any doubts about that and it is something that one can feel in a person it's part of the whole person's makeup and this is why the buddha gave precepts to follow <coughs> because it's our foundation our foundation of being and breaking the precepts breaks that inner being apart and it's easily noticeable we often think or maybe we always think that our thoughts and our emotions and maybe our behavior within our four walls are all hidden and they are a secret and nobody knows about them anyway well that of course is another myth we may not know exactly what a person is thinking or feeling or doing behind four walls but one can be very much aware of the kind of being that we have in front of us there's no doubt about it and the more we meditate the longer we meditate the easier it is to ascertain that in fact it becomes an immediate recognition where a meditator no longer looks at size shape and hair color but at the feeling that comes from that person and that is the kind of thing that arises out of our conduct within us when we think it's all secret but it isn't it's actually quite known and it is very often more expressive than our words because words can hide a world of things especially if one has a facility with words but the feeling that comes out of a person can't hide it as in no way because oneself doesn't even know it and what we don't know we can't hide so this is what we are and that is a very important foundation for the whole of the spiritual practice now virtue has been divided by the buddha into three parts the first one 
is volition. Volition means the same as intention. It's what we want to do. Now, very often, we haven't got a clue that we really intended thinking, saying, or doing something. Because things go so fast in everyday life that it's already happened before we realize that that's what we wanted to do. And sometimes, after we have said it, we feel quite uh, sorry about it and like to take it back. So this happens in everyday life. Slowing down is not a bad idea. But our volition and our intentions are karma-making. So this is something we need to watch. When we look at ourselves with um, attention, with mindfulness, we can become aware of what we intend. And these intentions are our motives. They're very important to check them out. Motives are not that clear-cut. They're very often half this and half that. Sometimes they have half of it looks like it's a generous act, but the other half of it is actually self-seeking. It's all right. We just need to know it. And then when we see that the generous act brings a great deal of joy and the self-seeking act brings a great deal of anxiety because we are worrying about whether we're going to get what we want, then we will see which one is more preferable. And as we see this often enough, we'll do it. Not just looking at it once doesn't usually help. We don't aren't that uh, quickly with our understanding that takes a while. So we have to keep looking again and again at our motives, <coughs> our intentions. Well, that's the first part of virtue, what we intend. What's our intention in life? What's our intention in speech? What's our intention in whatever we do? Now, there's a very important aspect of the teaching which has to do with this. And I'll put it in here because it fits this particular aspect very well. Now, I have already talked about mindfulness. I talked about mindfulness in all the four aspects and we'll get, probably have some mention of it again. But mindfulness, which means paying attention to oneself, is knowing only, knowing oneself. But it doesn't have discriminating judgment with it. It's just knowing, bare knowing. And that is, of course, necessary, because if we don't have bare knowing of ourselves, then we will have no idea what's going on. Ninety-five percent of mankind hasn't got a clue what's going on with them. They just act upon their sense contact, feeling, perception, and mental reaction constantly. But if we meditate, we must come to that point, and we all do, where we finally do know what's going on with us. But that's bare attention. Now that has to be joined and coupled with clear comprehension. The Buddha mentioned those two together many a time. Sati is mindfulness, S-A-T-I, and Sampayanya is clear comprehension. And the two are mentioned together over and over again because they are sort of companions on this path. And our virtue depends on that. 
our moral conduct depends on that. And likewise, our purification of thought and emotion. It depends on clear comprehension. Because mindfulness may know that we're not doing the right thing or thinking the right thing or acting in the right way, but that's it. It doesn't have that clear comprehension with it, how it has arisen and how it has come about and what we should do about it. So clear comprehension has four parts. And this is an important aspect of practice. It slows us down, which is marvelous, because what's the hurry? We're all going to the same place at different times, of course, but we're all going to meet on the, at the cemetery. So there's no hurry, none whatsoever. If we could just get that through our skulls, that there's no hurry whatsoever, that one just does one thing after another, and that it doesn't matter, because it's all going to break up and disappear eventually anyway, then we would uh, save ourselves a lot of stress, inner stress. Maybe not so much the outer stress, because maybe the outer stress we're trying to push away already, but the inner stress. So the first thing that we need to uh, investigate when we use clear comprehension is what's the purpose? What's the purpose of what I'm thinking? What's the purpose of what I'm saying? Or what's the purpose of what I'm doing? Which means I'm watching my intention because I haven't said it yet and I haven't done it yet. I'm only thinking it. What's the purpose? Is it a good purpose? Well, deluded as we are, we probably think that all of the things that we think are, are towards a good purpose. So that's all right. We've got a first start. So it's a good purpose. Or maybe it's, we think it's a useful purpose. Let's just think it's useful. Maybe we don't even think it's good. We think it's useful and necessary. It's uh, absolutely necessary. So then comes the next consideration. The next consideration is, am I intending to use the most skillful means? So we're still on intention, which is the first part of virtue. What are the most skillful means? So maybe I wish to say something. So I have to use the most skillful means if I want to accomplish my purpose, obviously. So then I have to think about that and see how I can use the most skillful means. Or if I want to do something, what's the most skillful means for doing it? So again, we probably think, yes, I know exactly how to do this. Done it hundreds of times, know exactly how to say this. How, know exactly how to handle this. And then comes the third consideration. Is it within the Dhamma? Does it actually go hand in hand with what the Buddha taught? And that's, of course, the crux of the matter. That's where the thing might fall down upon. Maybe it isn't what the Buddha taught. Maybe I'm, um, maybe the Buddha taught generosity and I'm not generous. Or maybe the Buddha taught loving kindness and I'm getting angry. Or maybe the Buddha taught that all beings are made up of the four elements and I'm trying to separate myself from somebody. Whatever it is, is it within the teaching? Now, you've heard that much teaching in the last four or uh, three weeks that it should be enough to check it out on, if you can remember it. 
of course. Maybe it's a good idea to have some little signs hanging up, like Suzanne is making for us, uh, with the most important aspects of the teaching. <laughs> I mean, at home, you know, hang them up. <laughs> so then, that is now the biggest consideration and absolutely applies to virtue and conduct on the level of behavior, thought, and also our emotions. And we have three doors. We have the door of thought, speech, and action. So within the action lies our behavior, but within the thought lies our emotion and, of course, our thought. And within our speech, of course, we have that um, relationship to other people. So within all that, we need to check, is it within the Dhamma? It's quite easy. You could see, would the Buddha have done that? Very simple. And look at it. Would the Buddha do this? Or would he do the opposite? And if you do that, you will undoubtedly find that many times the Buddha would have done exactly the opposite. So don't do it. Very simple. Even if you can't do the opposite, just don't do what you had in mind. It's a very, very easy way of being sure of virtue. And a virtuous person is rare in this world. And a virtuous person is a kind of person that has inner peace. Nothing can touch that virtue that's independent of outer conditions. It gives like a rock on which one can rest. So then you may say to yourself, well, yes, yes, the Buddha would have done that. It's quite all right. I'm going to go ahead with it. Then comes the fourth step after having gone ahead with either the speech or the action, because up to then it's all in the thought. It's all within the intention. So then comes the moment when the mind says, it's all right, go ahead, it's fine. Then comes the next consideration after having done it. Did I accomplish my purpose? And if not, why not? What went wrong? Was it not within the Dhamma? Was it not skillful means? Or was already the purpose wrong? Checking it back can help one to have a better grip on it the next time. And it does also slows us down with our reactions. So it is a very important aspect there are other aspects to this clear comprehension, but this is the one for daily life. There are other aspects concerned with our meditative path and more of a retiring way of doing things, but this is the one for daily life, clear comprehension. It is a necessity if we want to purify. Now, another aspect of virtue is abstention or restraint. I've already talked about that, the restraint of the sense contacts. We can't live without our senses. It's very difficult to live without them. It's uh, much easier if we have them. And we should use them, but with discretion, we always, until we really practice, we think that the senses are really an amusement park. 
And we have not really seen that it's all happening in the mind. It's not happening in the senses at all. The ear can only hear sound. It doesn't know it's a truck or a cough. It doesn't even know whether it's Mozart or Bach. Only the mind knows that. The ear hasn't got a clue. It hears sounds. And why does it hear sounds? Because they're vibrations. Sound is vibration, and that hits the eardrum, and so the vibrations are there, and we translate them. We're constantly translating, and very often, of course, wrongly. We often translate wrongly, particularly when it deals with what we hear from other people. Because, first of all, we don't hear very well. I don't mean that our ears are not working. We don't hear very well because we're thinking. So we're filtering. We don't listen very well because we're occupied with ourselves. And we have preconceived views. So when we hear things from other people, we make something up about it. And the same happens, of course, when we have our senses operating and put the me in it. That's a story we have invented. It doesn't have any basis in fact. So this is something we can check out, and I've already mentioned it many times. But the restraint which brings the virtue is not only restraining our sense contacts, but it's abstaining. Abstaining when the craving arises. Now this is a marvelous way of dealing with oneself. The Buddha did not um, recommend asceticism. He also did not recommend indulgence. There has to be a middle somewhere. But in a society such as this, that middle is totally unknown. It's not even within the thinking process. What this is, is an indulgent society and one that justifies indulgence. And the Buddha was actually living like that when he was a young man and didn't have a clue that it was indulgence until he saw the dukkha of the people outside of his palace grounds. And then he realized that he had been living in indulgence and luxury. And what he was living in then, we probably would consider privation, because I'm sure they didn't have any indoor plumbing in those days. So we wouldn't even consider this luxury. But for his day, it was luxury. And then he practiced, so he had lived like that for 29 years. He went into the forest at 29. Then he went and practiced austerities, asceticism. And that didn't work either because it made his body so weak that he couldn't meditate. And that's interesting, because it is a kind of wrong thought very often that one can overcome everything in the body. Well, an enlightened one can, but in those days he wasn't enlightened. He was trying to become enlightened. So he saw indulgence doesn't work, luxury doesn't work, Getting everything one wants doesn't work. Trying to run after everything that one thinks is nice doesn't work. And the opposite doesn't work either. 
So, a middle path. That's why it's called a middle path. But what is a middle path? A middle path is one where one is content with necessities. Difficult to figure out what's a necessity and what's a luxury. Well, the Buddha did give guidelines on that. He said there are four requisites. A roof over one's head, clothing to cover the body, food so that we can sustain the body, and medicine when sick. Finished. Now we can in our mind just check out for a moment what else we've got. Necessity or luxury? Is that really a way of becoming happy? Or is it unhappy if we haven't got those things? It's worthwhile checking that out. So abstaining means several things. It means abstaining from things and um, way of life which is unnecessary, where we don't are not concerned with necessities. That's one way of abstaining. Another way of abstaining is when we sometimes allow ourselves to get away from the very common cravings that all living beings have, which is, for instance, food. doesn't mean that we do what the Buddha did in the forest, that he became... He ate one rice corn a day for a long, long time and became so thin that you could count every rib. And sometimes you can see Buddha statues like that. And he said, that doesn't, doesn't do any good. But uh, sometimes abstaining, which is, means letting go of that natural craving that we have for existence and for sense pleasure. Just letting go at times, at abstaining at times. And of course it means abstaining from any thought that is negative or harmful, aggressive, and abstaining from every any harmful or unwholesome emotion. So it has a lot of connotations. It means that we realize that some things are totally unnecessary. We don't have to have emotions which are on the level of trying to um, be against anyone. The only way that we can live happily in this world is if we have love and compassion in the heart. There's no other way to live happily. And love and compassion, personally directed or universally, so that the heart has it in it. All other emotions have already in them the inbuilt, inbuilt quality of bringing unhappiness to ourselves. So that's abstaining, emotional abstaining, the thought abstaining, and then, of course, the action abstaining. All of that brings with it a feeling of inner strength. I can let go when I want to. I am not a slave to my senses. I am not a slave to my instincts. Knowing that gives an enormous feeling of ease and strength. And it takes willpower, of course. But without willpower, the whole past doesn't work. 
nothing works actually without willpower. Some needs more than others. So that's the second part of virtue. The first is the volition, the intention, and the second part is the abstaining or abstention and restraint. The restraint which we put upon ourselves quite voluntarily, which is not superimposed <laughs> upon us because of some idea that it belongs to a, a religious past, but something that we do quite voluntarily. And then the third part of virtue is non-transgression. Well, non-transgression means that we actually try to be without faults. Now, not to be trying to be without faults doesn't mean that we have a constant blaming for ourselves, because that's a fault. Blaming ourselves or others is a fault, because it's negative. Or any kind of um, feeling that we're doing wrong, it's not that at all. Non-transgression means that we know the precepts, non-killing, not taking what's not given, no sexual misconduct, no wrong speech, and no uh, intoxicants, drugs or drink. We know these precepts, which are the minimum of virtuous conduct, as the Buddha prescribed it, and we try to be without fault within that. Now, that sounds quite simple, and it's supposed to sound simple, but it isn't easy. Anybody who's ever tried this, and hopefully everybody has tried it, knows that particularly the fourth precept of no wrong speech, which in the Noble Eightfold Path appears as the first one of the virtue part, is called right speech, is a very difficult one to keep. And because it is difficult to keep, and because it is the one where we do make faults and have faults, it needs our attention, constant attention to our mind content. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. It's Dhammanupasana, which means the content of mind, means what's in there, because we can only say what we have thought before. And so when that, the thinking is watched and is purified, and it has to be purified in order to make meditation work, negative thought processes prevent meditation, then, of course, we will also find that there's no fault because we can stop it at the thinking level. So these are the three aspects of virtue. Our intention, which needs to be watched through clear comprehension, then abstaining, which means less speech, less action, possibly, and which means also the non-transgression, which means that we know if we transgress, we make bad karma. And nobody else except us. And this is one of the things that we need to know very clearly for now and ever after, that we are the ones that are hurting ourselves. We are the ones that are making bad karma, or good karma, of course. But if there's anything we're doing, we're hurting ourselves 
there's any unhappiness. Nobody else is doing it. And we might still have the idea that somebody has done it to us. Remember and check it out. If you take the mind off it, it's no longer there. So put the mind where it belongs. Putting the mind where it belongs means that we put it there where there is peacefulness. Now virtuous behavior has all these good resultants of joy and fearlessness and non-remorse in the, um, the peacefulness. It also has with it dignity. It is a, an inbred strength which brings dignity with it. And this is, of course, one of the reasons why in the Buddha's dispensation and all other religious dispensations that have monks and nuns, the precepts are an underlying fundamental expectations because there is inner strength and dignity that arises from that. And with that, the peacefulness is much easier. See, peace is what everybody wants, and it's much easier when that has already that underlying foundation. The Buddha mentions a whole list of negative emotions which are contrary to virtue. And it's a long, long list of negativities which we all know, and some of them we know very well. They have visited us and uh, taken abode in our heart many times. In fact, they might have become such frequent visitors that we thought they belonged there. They seem to feel so at home. Well, we need to remember that the heart is the home of love and that our nature is bliss. Everything else is just a superimposition of our thought process, which contains emotion. So this whole list and um, long list starts, of course, out with anger. And we all know that anger is very unpleasant for us, but also for other people. And uh, it's very much against any kind of virtuous behavior. Then there's jealousy, pride, envy, hypocrisy, covetousness. Then there is um, non-mindfulness. These are all uh, negativities. There are evil companions, bad friends, those that make us do things which are not really conducive to spiritual growth, which would probably entail alcohol and um, frivolity, which is not to say that we can't have some fun with friends. But fun with friends and alcohol and frivolity are not the same thing. The Buddha warns against that. He said, we are so easily influenced that we must watch out what kind of companions we have. It's the most important thing whom we associate with. 
he mentions this many times. It's not uh, particularly part of the Noble Eightfold Path, but it's certainly part of virtue. Idleness. Not doing anything. Can't be bothered. Resentment. Rejection. All negativities. Um, Disputing. Then craftiness, sort of manipulating, trying to manipulate others. These are all um, mentioned that. Then non-contentment. Now that's of course a very important one. Because if one's not contented with oneself or one situation in life, then there is the feeling of disquiet, anxiety and anger. Anger at who one is, where one is, how one came to be there. And this anger then translates into everyday life, of course. Now, it, if we have contentment with ourselves, it doesn't mean pride. That's the other extreme. Being proud of who we are and proud of our achievements. That's the other extreme again. Contentment just means that we see ourselves within the realm of dependent arising as trying our level best. That brings contentment. Again, there is indulgence, harsh speech, no faith, lack of faith, which brings skeptical doubt, which makes practice very difficult, and Impatience. Now, and the last two are non-restraint of the senses and non-meditation. Well, we can't be guilty of the last one. Whatever else we can be guilty of. Uh, It isn't so much guilt. It's human nature. The Buddha was a pragmatist. He saw human nature the way it was. And he said, this is what we have, this is within us. There are other, I haven't mentioned all of them. He's got a list of something like 89 of them or more. Um, I thought this would do. (laughs) 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 There's also uh, uh, stinginess and and, uh, there's uh, others. But he says these are, this is all based, all of them, are based on this ego delusion. Every one of them. Because if we reject and resist and get angry and uh, are obstructive or aggressive, it's because the supposed me in there is feeling threatened and not safe. And the less secure we feel, the easier we become aggressive, of course. Fear breeds aggressiveness. And then if we covet things, covetousness, that's also because this me in there wants to have a support system, wants to be satisfied. So since we can't get rid of the me overnight, unfortunately, although we have tried, haven't we? So uh, uh, we have to do other things. We have to get at it from the 
understanding of virtue and non-virtue. And that understanding is not difficult. It's not easy to practice, but it's not difficult to understand. Because if we check back on every time and say, well, this is due to the ego, the ego will undoubtedly say, well, so what? I'm here. And will continue to do what it's always done. So we might have a better entry through the understanding of what's virtuous and what is not. And when we see that everything that could be hurtful to ourselves or others is non-virtual, that everything that's helpful and supportive of others would be virtuous, then we already have a sort of um, entrance into seeing that the me, if that is trying to be supported, if that's the main thought, non-virtue arises. So the whole thing, of course, works together, but this might be a way of getting more in tune with what is actually helpful on this path. Because to get rid of the me is a difficult thing to do, although I we can investigate over and over again and see why it is acting the way it does. And we can see that, why it's acting the way it does, but we can't stop it from doing that immediately. So that might be another way of getting at it. The non-restraint of the senses. Now, I've talked about the senses a lot because we are constantly beset by them. They are constantly our um, input and our beginning of craving. So if we restrain them, and that is much easier here in a meditation retreat than it is out there, because we can watch ourselves much better. If we restrain our input through the senses, then we will restrain our craving. So if we don't listen to every sound and make a story out of it, but stop at sound only, there's no way we can become angry at the sound. No way could we ever have any dislike of it, because sound only cannot bring dislike. The same thing we can try with taste only. Pretty difficult. But we can try, and we can certainly do it with touch only. We don't have to get into the whole story of why we can't sit or why we want to do this with the body or that with the body. We can just have touch sensation. It's not easy to do, but if we can manage just once, we have a real insight into the mind's reactions to whatever comes at us from the senses. So our um, virtue path, which is the uh, foundation and in the Noble Eightfold Path, the middle of it, is intrinsically intertwined with our insight into me or non-me and intrinsically intertwined in looking at the four aspects of mind and trying to stay with the first one. Mind you, as soon as there is some sense contact, feeling arises simultaneously, but craving does not have to, which is a reaction. 
So this is a, an enormously important aspect of the practice because in daily life, whatever we hear or what we see or what we touch will have a reaction happening. And those reactions are this constant bottom pushing which we respond to without even giving it any consideration. And there is where our daily life then has its constant up and downs because it's never going to be only pleasant and even if it were, what could that do? What good would that do? We are responding to the pleasant with wanting it and wanting to keep it. So it doesn't do any good even if we only had pleasant sensations from through the sense contacts. But we don't. We have both. So if we can practice that here, we will see that it is possible to be without reaction, even if we just do it once or twice. It's an enormous strength-giving exercise. And there's another thing which happens if we don't react with craving or dislike to our sense contacts. If we realize through our meditative process, through the jhanas, that our senses can never provide what we already carry within, that this is far greater and far more satisfying than any sense contact, be it ever so pleasant. Then comes it becomes easier not to have the craving for the sense contact. So when that is then, because we become aware and awake and watch out for the reaction and also know that it isn't what it's made out to be, when we then don't have this craving to get the pleasant and to keep it, each sense contact becomes far more delightful because it becomes pure. When we don't want to keep it and don't want to renew it because there's no input of me or craving in it, because of that lack, the sense contact has its own purity and green looks much greener and white looks much whiter and sound is much more delightful, but it just is. As soon as the craving to keep and renew arises, it goes back down to what's always been, a bit in the gray area. It's quite nice, but it doesn't have any delight in it. So the sense contacts become a totally different experience when we have realized we don't really have to have them, or have to search for them, I should say. They come anyway. And then it is very interesting, which has happened many times to people after meditation, when one goes outside and sees the colors, and they're quite different. They're far more um, brilliant, and everything appears to have far more strength in it. So letting go of craving is not only the way to final liberation, which it may not accomplish right away, but it is also the way to have far more delightful sense contacts. They have a totally different ambience about them. Now, that's enough about being virtuous. 
And if you have questions, this is the time to ask them. Yes. Hi, I have two questions. The first question is, in terms of sense contact, say, for example, the ear hears the sound of a hand slapping a face, and then the feeling comes, can it not be that, is it possible that the feeling is one of dislike? Mm-hmm. It's unpleasant. So the feeling is unpleasant. The feeling is unpleasant. And the reaction is dislike. So the feeling is never dislike. The reaction is dislike. The feeling would be like fear or anger or... Unpleasant. Just, just unpleasant. unpleasant. The reaction can be fear, anger or dislike. Or all three, all put together also. So all of those are the reactions, but the only feelings are pleasant, unpleasant and neutral. Okay. I have a confusion between feeling and perception. Perception is labeling. Feeling and reaction. Yeah. It seems as though the feeling is the reaction. Yes, but it isn't really. Because, you see, the reaction you can see is an emotion. And the emotion then is fear, anger, dislike. But the feeling as such, bare feeling, is pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. But you can say that the reaction as feeling is an emotion. Okay, because feeling can be sensation and emotion. That's also feeling, that's sensation. But it can be emotion. If I start disliking it, it's an emotion. You say feeling can be sensation, sensation or emotion. Yeah. Right. So you have to distinguish between the bare feeling which arises, which is pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, or the emotion which comes from it. Or it can also, of course, be the sensation which you become aware of. Okay, I see it's very fine. Yeah, analysis. Yeah, but I think if you just think of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and then you let neutral go because we are always concerned with pleasant and unpleasant, we just forget about neutral, and then realize that your reaction is probably emotional, then you will see that that's what's happening. The second question that I have is, the more that I focus on Buddhism and open to the teachings, the more futile worldly involvement seems. And since I am married and a mother and have a business and my participation is required in these things... Um, Particularly I, as a mother. Especially <laughs> as a mother, yes. It seems difficult sometimes to get up any kind of enthusiasm for the things that are required in mothering or the things that must be taught only to be unlearned somewhere down the path. You said Buddhism is not for children. I know, I didn't say that. A few months ago you didn't? No, I didn't say Buddhism is not for children. It certainly doesn't sound like a sentence I would ever use. (laughs) I would say that insight cannot be achieved when one is very young, like a little kid. But Buddhism is for children. Why not? We've got lovely children's books about in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the thing about Buddhism is it seems to lead naturally, step by step, to a monastic ending. No, not necessarily. Um, what the daily life is all about and what um, your family life is all about, it's a constant challenge for love and compassion. And that's what it's all about. And it's not love as attachment, because that is exactly what family life produces. And therefore, it's never pure, 
because it always has the fear in it. Especially as mother, you I'm sure know that there's always the fear that <coughs> something is going to happen to the child. And that fear brings about also some very unloving actions. And that's why the love is never pure. So the thing that one learns in family life is the first is the, the lovingness and the compassion and then trying to let go of the attachment and love purely. It's a wonderful learning situation. You couldn't have a better one. <laughs> and the same happens in business. <laughs> I think I'll make little signs out of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a, and then, of course, you see, when you use it like that, you're using it for your spiritual path. And then you don't have to think, oh, this is divided. This is my life and this is my spiritual path. Because that brings a real dichotomy. And that brings a feeling of, I don't know where I am. Mm. But life is our spiritual path. We live from morning to night. And that is our spiritual path if we use it that way. But if we, you know, do anything in, in daily life that just comes to mind and then sit down in meditation in the evening, oh, what have we done? We haven't practiced. Practice goes on from morning to night. In every thought, in every speech, in every action. And so a lot of it has to do with patience, really, when things keep arising, no matter how much one diligently practices throughout the day. And little kids are wonderful teachers. (laughs) (laughs) And then if it doesn't work, that's all right. It's okay. One just starts again. Does it again. No. Recognition, no blame, change. That's one of the very important formulas. And it's, it's really that what is our life is all about. You know, if you happen to find yourself in that situation, that's what your life and your spiritual path is about. And if you find yourself in a business, that too can be uh, uh, done in a way which is more on a spiritual uh, basis. It doesn't mean that you don't have any profit. I mean, it doesn't mean that at all. But, you know, it's a kind of the way one acts with the people and the way one feels about the whole thing and the way one can really be involved with other people's dukkha and all that. Wonderful challenges. <laughs> okay. Yes, what else? Anything else? Yes. Even with my involvement with Buddhism before I came here. When I did come here, I realized how totally uninvolved I had been because, as I mentioned to you, I didn't even speak the language. However, you did mention there are five billion other people who are like that even more so. Essentially, the question has to be yet again. When you go out there, there are certain parts that go on to automatic pilot when confronted by the five billion. Like what? <coughs> well, it's one sort of stands back in horror sometimes to see the things that start coming up to deal with discussions and uh, the way they lead and suddenly you find yourself being critical and uh, uh, opinionated, judgmental, and all you've done was read the morning's paper <laughs> and start discussing it. Don't read it. <laughs> <coughs> I haven't read a morning paper in I don't know how many years. <laughs> but I, you know, you, you've 
done it. That's what we're talking about. You've done it. So yeah, but you see, now, look, <laughs> that's a different story altogether. Uh, what Ayala is saying is her life. She's a mother, and she also uh, helps to run a business. There is no choice. There is no choices there. This is her learning ex ex experience, both things, right? A morning paper is a choice. It doesn't belong to one's life. And I tell you the other thing about it is the fact that um, we need the input for the mind, the food for the mind. And I always um, compare that to people into being interested in health food. You know, brown rice is better than white. And uh, I assure you, not reading the morning paper is much better than reading it because that's the health food for the mind. Read a Buddhist book or something like that and you'll have health food for the mind. And the Buddha says that our five hindrances, which we discussed in the first uh, seven days here, a common antidote for all five are noble friends and noble conversations. And the noble conversation is the input into the mind. That's why we need to be careful what we talk about. We need to be careful about the speech and we need to be careful what we listen to. So what do we hear when we turn on television? And what do we see when we read the morning paper? And uh, what do, when people start discussing, what do they discuss? So either, we have two choices. Either if we're skillful, we may be able to change the subject. That's not always possible, but sometimes we can, right? And other times we can also <coughs> abstain. We don't have to listen, and we certainly don't have to take part if the discussion is on a level which is non-virtuous or just full of frivolity or whatever it happens to be. If it's not health food for the mind, we don't have to take it in. So health food for the mind is far more important than health food for the body, but of course uh, it would be advisable to have both. And the world has that, yes, of course, it's full of that stuff. And that's why it's important. You know, noble friends is such an important aspect. Um, maybe I will talk about it at more detail also. It's very difficult to go on a to have a spiritual path and to stay on it without support system. It's very difficult. So the support, the, the good friends who are with one and to whom one can be totally honest and who are totally honest with one, they are the greatest thing that we can have. And the Buddha said that, not in those words, but he said, a good friend is the whole of the holy life. So this is very important. Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. <coughs>
Now with your next in-breath, breathe in peace. From the air around you, from the night sky, from the moon and the stars and the trees, the mountains, the snow, wherever you feel that peacefulness exists, breathe it into you and fill yourself with that feeling of peacefulness. Feel the peacefulness spreading throughout your body. Without any disturbance. And on your next outbreath, breathe out love and surround yourself with it. Coming from your heart. And as you breathe in and out, let love and peace reach out to the person nearest you. Filling him or her with peacefulness, surrounding him or her with love. Coming from your inner being. And now let it spread to everyone here, filling everyone with peacefulness and surrounding everyone, embracing everyone with love. Your whole being does not contain anything else except these two, so you can reach out to everyone with them.
think of your parents and fill them with peacefulness embrace them with love letting nothing else arise within you Take a deep breath and let peace enter into you again. Fill yourself with it again. And let the warmth of love surround you again so that there's plenty there that you can give away. And now think of people whom you would like to give the gift of peacefulness and love and fill them and surround them with peace and love. Now think of anyone whom you find difficult to love and let the abundance of peacefulness and the abundance of love that you have in your heart reach out to that person too. Giving the gift without any condition.
Now think of different people you know that you meet in your daily life. And let each one be the recipient of love and peace from your heart, from your whole being. And now imagine that the peacefulness and the love which are contained within you are so strong that your body and your mind enlarge and expand, bigger and bigger, shedding love and peace to all beings that you can contact. And as it gets bigger and bigger and the love and peace makes you expand more and more, through the villages and towns, through the states, through the country, the continent, all continents, all oceans, the planet Earth, shedding peace and love on all inhabitants, embracing them all.
Now put your attention back on yourself. And take a deep breath to refill yourself with peacefulness. And feel yourself completely filled from head to toe with only peace and nothing else. And on your next out-breath, breathe out love from your heart, surrounding and embracing yourself with it, feeling protected, secure, and at ease. May all beings have love and peace in their hearts. 